Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Rage Podcast. I am your new and current host, Mikla Parker, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. In today's episode, we will be talking to Professor Ann Schneider and Colin Bogle, who make up the Social Justice Solidarity Series team out of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. In our episode today, we will be providing background about SJSS, current events around our community, as well as hopes for the student group in the future. Without further ado, let me introduce our guests. My name is Aaron Schneider. I'm the Leo Block Chair of International Studies. I'm a professor in the Corbell School of International Studies. I direct the Masters in International Development, and I'm here today to speak about the Social Justice Solidarity Series and the work that I've been doing with students like Colin. My name is Colin Bogle. I, I'm from Jamaica. I was born in the U.S., but I was raised there. And I've always been involved in activism and the like. And this is just something that was available to me within the confines of my work study scholarship. And I don't regret it at all. Thank you again for that. To begin our interview, I wanted to ask, how did Social Justice Solidarity Series start here at DU? And how did you connect with it individually? When I came to the University of Denver, eight years ago, 2014, recognized immediately that University of Denver is a great school with great colleagues, professors, staff, students, really talented and interesting people. And it's also a school that has not been built to to respond to the needs of students of color, immigrant students, students of working class backgrounds, all of the students who traditionally have been excluded from elite dominantly white private universities. And, and, and so the University of Denver replicates and in some ways exacerbates it, uh, th- that feeling that the students who have been traditionally excluded feel when they step onto campus. And so I created the Social Justice Solidarity Series because I wanted to create a space to build student power. It's my belief My understanding, the way that University of Denver has been built over its 150 years reproduces these these systems of of exclusion. It was not set up to serve those students that I mentioned. And so in order to change those structural systemic characteristics of the school that reproduce exclusion, we really have to build the power of those who've been excluded. And so finding a way to build the voice and the power in the organization of those students has been what the Social Justice Solidarity Series is is about. And each year, you know, uh, my role is to really just create a space to realize the great ideas and talents and capacities that the students already have within them. And so we identify key issues that are pressing at the beginning of each year among the students in conversation with the students. And then we identify actions and activities that we can do during the year to address those priority issues. And some years it's, it's climate, some years it's, it's offensive tax on students of color, on indigenous students. The pioneer moniker was something that we paid attention to in one year. The closeness of the university to certain corporate interests and the way in which that manifests on campus is something that we've attempted to address. And this year with Colin, especially around labor issues. And so we've been working on, on labor issues on campus and in the community. And this solidarity between campus and the community is one of the contributions and the, the aspects that I think really empowers the students 
and brings the students in contact with activists in the community. For me, I was doing my work study with the Graduate School of Social Work while I was still online in Jamaica for my first year of school. And I don't know, I was just really outspoken about racism and such on campus. And I got looped into a lot of these rabble rousers, so to speak. There are a lot of people, Uma, Suraj, Mandy, but they had really introduced me to Aaron and the Social Justice Solidarity Series. And it was something that I'd wanted to do for some time, you know, get involved in activism and so on. And I liked, honestly, that part of that I was getting paid to do it because I just didn't have the room to be able to do that unless it was part of my work study. So after a year at GSSW, I came over here and it's been a very rewarding experience. And I wouldn't say it's getting worse, but I will say that a lot of the Black people I've spoken to in Denver who have lived here for some time are looking to leave. And like faculty of color at DU are looking to leave as well. So I think what we do here is just urgent if this school wants to continue existing in 15 years time. I completely agree and admire the empowerment that you're giving to not only the community here in Denver, but also the community at large here at DU of students of color. I think it's so important to stop acting like these issues are in a bubble. Colleen, you talked a little bit about this, and I'd love to segue into this next question, which is how has advocacy played a role in your life before Social Justice Solidarity Series? I'd love to hear about your individual experiences as well as how those experiences have helped you in your roles within Social Justice Solidarity as well. Well, honestly, even though I grew up in Jamaica, I was born in Houston and my father lives in Houston. So I went there a lot. And I'll tell you, in Jamaica, lots of people in Jamaica, I would say that we're like a race blind society, but often just identifying as Jamaican suffices by and large. So whereas I was dark skinned in Jamaica, when I came to Houston, I was black. And there's a massive difference between the two. And you'd think that living in like a wealthy white area of Houston with an educated father would prevent the police profiling and so on. It didn't. At most, when people heard my accent, they'd assume that I wasn't from the country, but it, it didn't go away. And I got very involved in activism at my old university, the University of the West Indies, back in Jamaica. I was heavily involved with activism, not necessarily for the queer community, but I was affiliated with them. And just all of the rabble rousers at my school, the queer community, the feminist movement at my school, what I did for almost like work before I came to this school was I did a lot of organizing to set up an art district in an underprivileged part of Jamaica, not necessarily for like activism sake alone, but also for economic diversification. So I always approached it not necessarily as like a passion, but as a job, so to speak, you know, and what informed the passion was my lived experiences as a black person. And I think approaching it as a job, it helped give me the separation to not go crazy, honestly, and getting paid is always useful. But honestly, like being black in the United States, you're going to come across this stuff anyways. I'm just grateful to have had the chance to be able to do it while getting paid and getting an education. The job that I had before I came to the University of Denver was in New Orleans, and it was in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And I immediately got involved when I got there 
uh, in what was, you know, the redevelopment of a city after a disaster. And what was clear in that process is that it was it was a city being rebuilt along the lines that the white, internationally connected elite wanted to rebuild. And they were excluding the people of color, the working classes, the community movements of of New Orleans who had a long history. And so getting involved with those those movements by connecting to to organizations in New Orleans, connecting them to my classes and improving my teaching that way, becoming active and attempting to to fan their voices, uh, incorporating their work into my research. Uh, I ended up writing a book about the post-Katrina development of, of New Orleans and the political competition between an elite project and popular projects. And then I arrived in Denver in 2014, and I remember it was January, and the first thing that I remember of the headlines was that there was a headline that said, Denver has the highest rate of gun homicides in however many years. 61 people died last year. And first of all, that was shocking because I came from New Orleans, where 61 is March. So Denver is this incredibly wealthy and middle class and upper class city, as is indicated by those kinds of numbers. But within the numbers of 61 deaths by gun violence, four were African-American, two were Latinx, and one was indigenous. All seven were people of color. And so this told me that the same kinds of exclusions, the same kinds of of oppressions that were present in, in New Orleans are present in Denver. And so it was, you know, clear that the work had to had to continue in, in Denver also. And so I was eager to, to make that same connection between university teaching, research, and activism connect to the community. Thank you for both of your responses and the contributions that y'all have both done in your individual lives and how you're bringing that to our campus to help create dialogue on these issues in a broader and a more narrow lens. I wanted to ask, in light of the April 15th vandalization of the TP and the impact of that on the Native and Indigenous community here on DU, in your experience with Social Justice Solidarity Series, what has been the needs of BIPOC students on our campus to feel safe as well as empowered and faculty as well? I'd love to expand that dialogue. I can't speak for the Native American community because, you know, there is so much that I will like learn about throughout the journey of my life, but I don't really know if I can ever truly understand it, you know, because it's more than just learning it. It's actually being in that world, you know, and there's so much to it. But what I can tell you is I think that um, particularly speaking with like older people in Denver, they're saying that once marijuana was legalized in this state, the population exploded. It's full of a lot of expats from California, expats from Texas, and so on and so forth. And that's led to a lot of gentrification, like a ridiculous amount. And whereas that's to be expected, I feel like the city of Denver has not done much to fix that. You know, they've, to a certain extent, chosen the rich white people coming in for the marijuana and the landscape over the people who are from Denver and have kind of built up Denver over time. I think DU has done that as well. It is a private institution, so it does need money. That's understandable. But it consistently has, I don't know if chosen is the right word, but you can see in some of the policies that there's like a bias towards rich students, towards white students, towards students from, you know, and that kind of bias is, I think, the root cause of all of this, 
Because honestly, when people know that they are the preferred group, they'll do what they want and treat people how they want and they won't get into any trouble. Especially for the Native American community on campus. I mean, this school was formed on a genocide, you know, and I don't know what this school has really done to grapple with that, but consistently choosing not to deal with it is effectively choosing the oppressor over the oppressed. I have great respect for Colin and, and for all the student activists that I've come to know. I mean, there, there are just innate uh, and, and perfected capabilities that, that uh, you all demonstrate. I learn from you all the time. My only observation on, um, on, on this might be just to, to remind ourselves a little bit of the history of Denver. What many people may not know is that, you know, in the 19... 20s, 30s, 40s, Denver had a KKK mayor. Stapleton was a member of the KKK, was the mayor of Denver, and the police force of Denver was a coercive body that enforced white supremacy in, in the city. And that was felt by all the different populations of color in the city, especially Latinx and indigenous populations. And it was in the 60s and 70s in movements like the Latino movement, Crusade for Justice, which was a really amazing, you know, bottom-up movement, and the, the American Indian movement in Denver. Together, those groups, first of all, they collaborated. They worked together in really brilliant and innovative ways to articulate solidarity between these groups. And talking to some of the organizers of those movements, and I had them come and speak to the Social Justice Solidarity Series so, uh, in our first year so we can know some of that history. And one of the things that they said was land. Denver, Colorado, this is stolen land. And it was stolen land first from indigenous people and then from the Mexican, Mexican, you know, American population that lived in this entire region. And so a KKK mayor in Denver was not an accident. It was necessary in order to exclude all of those Latino, Hispanic, indigenous people from the positions of power that they might have occupied as this land and as this territory was stolen from them. So, you know, that is the history. And so the understanding of the shared struggle of the Latinx and the indigenous population of Denver is something that, you know, comes to us. It is, it is part of how DU has to understand its position, its role in this larger process. And so DU has to look at what it means to allow the pioneer moniker to continue. What side are we on? You know, if, if, if we set up an environment in which the message is we side with those who stole the land and not with those whose land was stolen from them, well, then that creates the situations where students feel like they can harass and attack Native students as occurred in September of this year. And they feel like they can tear down and desecrate the teepees that were desecrated just a few weeks ago. By creating that sort of environment in which the university sends a message that it sides with those who stole the land, then you get these sorts of outcomes. And so like Colin said, if we don't deal with it, it will continue. Your comments make me think about so many things like how 
the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, we've occupied stolen land for so long. And it makes me also think about Hawaii and how that is illegally occupied as well. And we act as if it's a state and it's not. It was stolen from its queen by the U.S. and continued to just be occupied. And it's eliminated its sovereignty completely because of that. And it speaks volumes to the lack of humanity and dignity. We live under a system that perpetrates these injustices on communities of color specifically and how it's important to bridge coalitions across identities because I think that there's shared knowledge in trying to understand and eliminate the systems that are killing us ultimately and trying to erase our existence. So thank you all. I wanted to move on to something a little lighter. How do you handle, uh, specifically within your lives, potential burnout, stress with school and work, and other factors while also being an advocate on campus? And what can your community do to better support you and provide access for community, but also just a space for you to decompress? This might sound greedy, but I don't think it does. Honestly, they need to raise the minimum wage that they pay people at their school, you know? Like, it was $15 until it went up to 18 but, like, blackjack pizza down the road is 20 So should I quit working for y'all and go right there? Like, I'm not bashing them. I'm glad that they got 20 but I should get 22 You know what I'm saying? So I feel like there's an extent to which community and support is needed, but by and large, people just have material needs that need to be met, you know? I have a counselor at the school and I have access to psychiatric care at the school as well. But even those people, I can't see them as often as I should because it's like 10 of them for the entire population or something like that. So I feel like just really reinvesting a lot of the dividends that they're making into just supporting the bottom level of people at the school, that will just lift everyone up. Once again, a great answer. And now, now you see why I, why I appreciate and hired Colin the first chance I could. For me, the self-care that I do is to organize. I only feel healthy when I, I am addressing the problems that, that are evident and addressing them by building the power of those who've been made vulnerable. And so, you know, wages are one aspect of the living standards that our students and our staff and even some of our faculty, like our adjunct faculty, have to face in order to have a decent self-care on this campus. And Denver is incredibly expensive. It's, go, it's getting more expensive and wages have not kept up. And in some ways, you know, you can just say, oh, they haven't kept up. But more significantly, you know, the university is taking advantage of the fact that they can pay people peanuts while charging these you know, massive amounts of tuition to, to really gain a, an incredible surplus. And so some of that needs to be redistributed to the people who work, those who teach the classes, who keep things running as student workers on campus, the staff who keep the campus going. They all need decent livable wages. And, and right now that's not, that's not the case. In addition to, to wages and, and, and working conditions, one of the aspects of, of you know, a decent university life also is shared voice and governance. And so all the things that you were, you were talking about are, are also, you know, really important to organize around in the sense that we have a university that doesn't have to listen to all the voices that come from students, especially students of color, from, from immigrant students, from working class students, from the workers on campus, the staff on campus, very few 
actors on campus, even faculty, really have a voice and have access to shared governance in a, in a, in a significant way. And so organizing students, staff, faculty is about not just wages, which are a, an important beginning part of it, but also to be able to organize and have a voice so that you're, you have input into the way the campus is governed. So the decisions around the pioneer moniker are not made by one person or, or solely by the board of trustees so that an event like the de desecration of the teepees isn't kept secret and isn't made news that's unknown or unworthy of being known, but rather is something that we talk about and some response for. So shared governance is another part of this. Thank you for that point. Working together and building within each other has been super impactful. And even going back to the moniker, when I was at CSU, Lawrence Ross deals with these kind of issues on campuses and specifically links them back to like fraternity and sorority life and how institutions have used those communities, a way to prioritize money being funneled in. You bring up interesting points and it's naivete to think that there's not a linkage between us winning the hockey national championships and that TV desecration. That communicates a lot during a time of being proud to be a pioneer and then a desecration of something that's supposed to emulate what our community stands for. Going to one of our last questions, I wanted to ask, as Social Justice Solidarity series moves forward, what are some of the goals that you have and some of the things that make you excited for the future as far as student activism? Well, I kind of hope that it's a very difficult thing to kind of pin down what SJSS is. But I have always tried to see it as an like an activist organization coming out of DU that supports activism on and off of campus. And because Aaron has tenure, they can't really fire him or like break it up as easily, which I thought was really useful. But what I would like to see it keep doing is just remain agile. You know, its focus is always on supporting progressive activism and whether or not that means divesting in terms of divesting from fossil fuels, union organization, racial justice. There's probably room for us at all of those tables if they're willing to have us. What gives me hope is that a lot more of the students at DU or at least at Corbell are more diverse than they were when I started out. And I'm hoping that as that wave continues that you'll get a lot of people who are involved in this or can find some way to help you know i don't think we had anywhere near as many native students as we do now three years ago so imagine what happens when we have like three times that population there that's kind of where i'm looking at it from one of the ways in which social justice solidarity has been has been successful is like colin said identifying the movements and activists on campus with whom we can collaborate. And because we have a institution, meaning a faculty member who has tenure and a budget, that means that we can be here as a constant as those movements emerge and, and, and take shape. Uh, and so we can provide resources like trainings with our networks of, of, of activists and organizers in the community, bring them onto campus to provide trainings to students around one or another uh, issue or campaign. So that's, that's one thing that we'll continue to do. And, you know, I guess uh, one observation about student activism through so social justice solidarity and also just in general on universities, students cycle through. There are four-year undergraduate programs, there are two-year master's programs, there are, you know, three to five-year PhD programs. The students are on these cycles 
And, and each year is itself its own cycle as you go through the quarters and kind of like you ramp up each quarter and then you, you, you get stressed with the final exams and then you're on break and then you start the next quarter and then you know, next thing you know, it's summer. So there's sort of like these quarterly, yearly and then curricular cycles that the students go through. And, and so students sometimes feel like, oh, they're starting from zero. They come in. And they see all the problems at University of Denver, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, we've got to get moving on this. This is this is this is terrible." And and they're right. And as I see it, over the last eight years, you know, each influx, each wave, each cohort of students adds, you know, its own energy. And so I don't know what it's going to look like next year. I'm hopeful because I know that there are great students who are active on campus and, and doing good work and leave sort of that, that memory, it's written into the, the work that, that we've done and the things that are left. So, you know, we move forward in inches, you know, in, in uh, year by year. Uh, and it, it, may, it may be hard to see as you're looking at it, but looking back at it over time, I can see how every wave of students has, uh, has claimed space on this campus, you know, uh, and my hope is that we just keep on doing that. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Before I let you go, I wanted to give you the space to plug any opportunities that SJSS is having in the future. Is any communication that you want to link as well? Um, we're on Instagram, I think, as sjss.du. But what we'll probably be doing in the next couple of weeks is we're going to have a meeting with DU which is a group of students who want DU to divest from fossil fuels. And we're going to see if we can bring in a labor organizer to talk with them about basically just how to organize a successful campaign. So please check that out if you get the chance. And that's about it. The other thing is I think the Corbell Students of Color is going to have a town hall in the last couple of weeks of the school year. I'm not sure when as yet, but we'll be on the lookout for that as well. Thank you again, gentlemen, for making time to speak with me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. I really look forward to helping amplify any opportunities, advocacy work, or initiatives that SJSS is putting on in our community here at DU or in Denver at large. So thank you again. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Rage Podcast. The RAGE podcast is the product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. To learn more about what we do, please visit our website at irise.du.edu. To ensure that we bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe, follow, like, or share on the platform you are listening to us on. For RAGE opportunities and updates, please follow our social media pages. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The RAGE Podcast, all one word. Thank you again for listening to another episode of The Rage. And remember, every day you are breathing, you are winning. Stay safe and you are loved.